Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of, his, of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Amen. This is the word of God. Lately, there have been a number of very unsettling uh, matters before us. Uh, for example, this uh, past week, I attended uh, the General Assembly of Victoria. And one of the matters that the Assembly deals with is how to handle any changes in the law uh, that affect our practices as a church. And as you might know, the Victorian um, Parliament uh, earlier this year passed uh, the Change or Suppression Practices Prohibition Act. Uh, which will come into effect in February next year. And the legislation, it seeks to stamp out what it considers abusive conversion therapies, uh, which sounds like a good intention. However, what is considered an abusive conversion therapy is broad enough to even include uh, the practice of trying to persuade someone to a biblical view of sexuality and gender. And that is quite alarming for Christians because it, it actually means that the act of praying with someone who is struggling with sexual identity or even a parent seeking to guide their own children uh, in these kinds of matters uh, could potentially face criminal charges. And so it's a very unsettling uh, act that's being passed. Another issue that unsettles us at, the, at this time, of course, is the, um, the continuation of this um, pandemic and uh, it's still hogging all the headlines in the news. Uh, now the focus seems to be on the, the large case numbers and, and how our hospitals and our nursing staff will cope uh, under all this stress. Uh, you know, what happens if you need to go to the hospital for some other emergency? Will, will, there be, uh, will you be able to get seen? 
So again, it's very unsettling. And then in the background of the news at the moment, there's a lot of chatter about the growing tension between China and Taiwan and the, and the US. And if they go to war, obviously Australia will get uh, roped into that. And so it makes you wonder, are we going to go from a worldwide pandemic into a worldwide war? Again, it's very unsettling. And so we have nations, governments, pandemics. I mean, these are powerful forces that in many ways we have no control over. And yet they do, and they have, greatly impacted our lives. These are very unsettling times. And of, as I often mention, this, this is all on top of the, the things that are already in our lives, the many issues that already uh, deeply trouble us. And so I wonder if you have felt unsettled lately. Well, Psalm 33 speaks into this experience of being unsettled, and it does so in a unique way. See, normally Psalms uh, that address a troubled soul, they begin by describing trouble, then leading you to reasons for faith and then end with praise. But this psalm actually starts the other way around. It begins with praise. Verses 1 to 3 are a call to worship. And then after that we have a call to worship, we then have the reasons that we should worship in verses 4 to 19. And finally, uh, the result we see here is faith in the face of trouble. And that's in verses 20 to 21. Now, by putting in this order, this psalm actually teaches us that worship is the context in which bold faith grows and thrives. Uh, worshiping the Lord, that's to be the default mode of our heart. That's to be the focus of our lives. Uh, verse 1 says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Now that word befit is teaching us that worship is what actually fits us. This is what we've been created for. Uh, God designed us to shout and to sing his praises, to, to proclaim his excellencies, as we had our call to worship say. And what we see here is that it's only when we turn from worshipping the Lord and worship other things that the, the troubles of the world and the troubles of our lives begin to overwhelm us. And so verses 1 to 3 are calling us to do what we've been created to do, to worship the Lord, to sing his praises. And what are we to sing about? What is it that we are to, to worship the Lord for? What, what is to capture our hearts that will actually drive us to worship and as a result calm our troubled souls? Well, this psalm holds out two things about God that should drive us to worship, his sovereignty and his steadfast love. God's sovereignty and God's steadfast love. Let's consider those two aspects of God now. So first, God's sovereignty. Now, what do we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty? It's a word we throw it around a lot, but what does it actually mean? Well, when we talk about God's sovereignty, we're actually talking about his power primarily. Uh, this is about God's power to act, uh, God's power to get things done. It's his ability to do whatever he wants without any uh, opposition, and without any obstruction. And God's sovereignty, it's displayed in two ways uh, in this psalm. Uh, first, God's sovereignty, or his sovereign power, is actually seen in his word. And that's in verses 4 to 9. Uh, God only has to speak, and things happen. 
Uh, that's usually how power works, isn't it? That uh, the more powerful you are, the less you get things done by doing and the more you get things done by speaking. Uh, this is why powerful people, uh, you know, they don't do menial tasks. They just give orders and uh, those things just happen. You know, that's why powerful people have personal assistance and, uh, and a whole uh, s staff and employees to carry out every command uh, that they can give. And see, God can get things done like that. Um, but this psalm is talking about something far more powerful than ordering people around. Uh, the heart of this section is actually verse 6, where it says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So that's referring to all the stars and the galaxies uh, in this vast universe. And that all came about by God speaking. You know, if you read Genesis 1, there's that sentence that's repeated often. Uh, it goes, it starts by saying, and God said, and it ends by saying, and it was so. And God said, and it was so, on and on. And that's how God created the whole universe. Everything you see has come from God speaking, speaking all things into existence out of nothing. That's God's sovereign power, his ability to speak and things happen. That's why verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Everyone, not just Christians, everyone needs to stand in awe of God. Why? Because he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And so that's absolute power. That is God's sovereignty on display. Only God can do that. See, his power is infinitely greater than anyone else. And when you think about it, that much power, in some ways, that would be absolutely terrifying to encounter someone so powerful, except that God is who he is. And that's what verses four to five um, actually start this section with starts by reminding us that the word of the Lord is upright. Okay, God's powerful word that he created everything, his word is upright, goes on to say, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And so what we see in these verses is that God's word is an expression of his character. Uh, every decree God makes, every command he gives, Everything he says is the expression of who he is, that he is right, that he is just, that he is loving. And so God's sovereignty displayed in his word, his word is upright. The other way that God's sovereignty is displayed in this psalm, it's not only seen in his word, but also in his plans. Uh, God's sovereignty means that his plans always prevail. And that's what verses 10 to 11 are about. It says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Now, the point of these verses is that people and nations plan and God plans, but only God's plans prevail. God's plans override all of the others. Now, just think about your own ability to plan for a minute. How did your plans for 2021 go? 
if it was anything like mine, they all went out the window because of COVID again for the second year in a row. Um, but look, even without a pandemic to lock everything down, whenever we make plans, there are millions of reasons why those plans may or may not work. Uh, for example, the weather, uh, we might get an injury, uh, things break down, uh, there's unreliabilities, people are unreliable, uh, there might be a power outage, um, a relative might suddenly need help. And so all of our plans are contingent, which means they're all subject to changing circumstances. That's why we have contingency plans. That's why we often have a plan B and a plan C and, and on and on. But see, God never has that problem. There are no plan Bs with God. He doesn't need them. There's no contingencies with him. What he plans always comes about because his power is ultimate. And so God is never frustrated by the unforeseen because he sees all. He's never caught off guard by the unknown because he knows all and he controls everything. And so God is never anxious about something not working out. He's never stressed out or, or wondering what to do next. He doesn't never has that experience because he is sovereign. The counsel of the Lord, it says, stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. See, God's sovereignty means that his plans always prevail. They are never hindered. But perhaps verse 10 actually raises a question for you. Because verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Now just think about that for a minute. God frustrates the plans of the peoples. What does that actually mean? Um, perhaps the question is, well, if God can do that, then how come he doesn't do it more often? Uh, why is it that evil plans are made and evil plans are carried out? They seem to succeed. Why is it that nations can go to war? Why is it that people can uh, plan and plot and, and do terrible things like September 11 and, and things like that. And what, where is the God who frustrates the plans? Now, while there is no simple answer to that question, the Bible does give a satisfying answer. And the answer the Bible gives is to look at the bigger picture. Uh, consider the overall outcome. <clears throat> See, the Bible constantly teaches that evil people do make evil plans and those evil plans do get carried out and seem to succeed. But ultimately, God's plans prevail even over those, those types of plans. And there's many examples of this in the Bible, but I'll just give you two. So think of um, Joseph. Uh, think of Joseph's life. Uh, his brothers, uh, when, he, when Joseph was young, his brothers hatched a plan to sell him as a slave to Egypt. And that plan worked. It wasn't frustrated. Well, didn't seem to be anyway. Uh, while Joseph was in Egypt, just when things started to look a little bit more positive for him, this crazy woman accused him of abuse, of assault, which then landed him in jail. And so poor old Joseph, separated from his homeland, his, his dad, uh, stuck there in a foreign land, in a prison cell, no way of getting out. What would Joseph have been thinking? Maybe he could have been wondering to himself, what happened to the God who frustrates the plans of the peoples? Why didn't he frustrate my brother's plan to sell me here in the first place? 
And the answer, that, as we see in the life of Joseph, is that God had a bigger plan, a much bigger plan that actually did frustrate his brother's plan. But you don't see how that is frustrated until you get to the end of the story. Because from that prison cell, through a series of events, uh, Joseph, you know, to get to the end of the story, Joseph became prime minister of Egypt. And through his leadership, he was able to save the whole known world at that time uh, from death through famine, including his own family. See, Joseph needed to be in Egypt in order for that to happen. And he needed to have his character shaped through all of those, uh, all that suffering. But it was only at the end, only when Joseph could then look back over the course of his life and see the way that God had in fact frustrated his brother's plan, not by preventing their plan from happening, but by turning that plan into good, by bringing good out of that evil plan. And that's why at the end of his life, Joseph could turn and say to his brothers in Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, in the end, God's plan overruled for good. Now, the other example, which uh, tops every other one, of course, is the cross of Jesus. I mean, what could be a more evil plan than the plan of those Jewish leaders to murder the Son of God? And yet in Acts 2, when Peter is preaching his first sermon about the death of Jesus, uh, he says this in, in verse 23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So notice the balance there. You've got people plotting against Jesus. They killed him and they are responsible. They're called lawless. But at the same time, we see that Jesus came and died according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So again, in this example, we can see that God did frustrate uh, the plans of the peoples, not necessarily by preventing their plan from happening, but by turning that into good, by bringing good out of that evil plan. See, in, in the cross of Jesus, we actually see the, the worst plan ever, the most evil plan, ends up bringing about the greatest good, salvation, uh, salvation from sin. And so here we have God's sovereignty on display. He overrules everything. And so as much as people and nations and even Satan himself plan and fight against God and think they're winning, in the end, all that they can ever do is only ever further God's plans. You can't outsmart God. The counsel of the Lord, verse 11 says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And so that means at the end of history, everything that ever happens in this universe will be seen as God's purposes prevailing. And all of those purposes will be good and will be all to the praise and glory of our sovereign God. See, this is the sovereignty of God. His plans always prevail. He is in complete control. And so we worship him as the sovereign God who rules over all. Now, with all of that in mind, what would it be like to have this God, this sovereign God, so powerful? What would it be like to have him 
take a special interest in you so that he uses his power for your good. What would that be like? Well, this is where the writer takes us in this psalm. In verse 12, the writer moves suddenly from talking about God's sovereignty over all things to now talking about a particular people that he has a special interest in. And this is the people of God's steadfast love. So look at verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now, there is a connection to God's sovereignty in this verse, and you can see that in the word chosen. Uh, these are the people that God has chosen to be his. Uh, this is something that God continually re would remind his people of right throughout the Old Testament, that the, that the reason they belong to him is because God decided to choose them. Uh, God reminded them that their relationship was not their right. Uh, it wasn't based on something good in them. It was not based on their decision, but it was based on God's decision. It was based on his choice to love them and to, to make them his very own people, even though there was nothing particularly lovable about them. But God in his mercy decided to choose Israel to be his heritage. Uh, Deuteronomy 7 is perhaps the best chapter that describes uh, that relationship. Um, but God continually reminded his people of this fact to teach them humility, to teach them gratitude, to teach them about his commitment to them. And he reminded them so that they would trust him, that they would actually believe that he would take care of them. So it's a great verse, verse 12, but what does it actually have to do with us today? Well, in the New Testament, the New Testament teaches us that what was true of Israel in the old covenant in the national sense, is now true of the believer who is part of the body of Christ. So 1 Peter 2 verse 9 that we read at the beginning uh, describes believers collectively like this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, those are all descriptions taken straight out of the Old Testament and applied to believers in the New Covenant. And that means that if you are trusting in Christ today then verse 12 is also true of you. And, and so it's reminding you that God in his sovereignty has chosen you. He's chosen you to be one of his own. And if he has chosen you, then he loves you. And that means he is committed to caring for you. Now, verses 13 to 19 go on to describe God's special care of his people. So first verses 13 to 15. They make the case that God sees absolutely everything. See, look at all those references to God seeing. So God is fully aware of every single person uh, and of every single deed. He knows what's happening to his people. He knows what's happening to you. He knows what's, what you're going through in life. Uh, he is watching. He sees everything. But he's also looking for his people to trust him. And that's what verses 16 to 19 are all about. Verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So this is forcing us to think, what is truly reliable in life? 
I mean, what, what can I ultimately count on? What will really keep me safe? Um, because e even a great army can let you down. I mean, even a government can let you down, a financial institution, a health system, family and friends, all of these can let you down, not, not intentionally, but simply because they're not all powerful. They don't have power in the ultimate sense. They're all contingent. But there is only one who will never let you down, and that is the Lord himself. In fact, notice verse 19 says that God is the one who can deliver your soul from death. Now, doesn't that take on a new meaning in the New Testament? Because how has God delivered our soul from death? By sending his only son to die in our place. We deserved eternal death for our sin. And yet God sent his son who, who went in our place, took that eternal death upon himself on the cross and paid for our sin in full. And so there we have in the cross of Jesus, the ultimate declaration of God's commitment to you, his love for you on display. That's his steadfast love showing you that he is absolutely committed to you for all of eternity. And so what this psalm is showing is that if you know that God really is sovereign and you know that he really has put his steadfast love on you, then you can trust him no matter what. No matter what happens in your life, in your church, in your state, in your country, in the world, if God is sovereign and if God has his steadfast love upon you, then you are absolutely safe. For all of eternity, you can trust him. You can trust him no matter what happens. And so what that means, <clears throat> it means that we're only unsettled by events and problems and powers to the degree to which we lose sight of the sovereignty and the steadfast love of the Lord. That's why verse 18 says, the eye of the Lord is on those who what? Number one, who fear him, which means to be in awe of his sovereignty and on those who hope in his steadfast love. So what does it look like to actually believe this then? What does it look like to trust in the sovereignty and the steadfast love of God? Well, that's what verses 20 to 22 are all about. See, verse 20, it says this, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Now, right there is a very wonderful description of what it actually means to trust in God what it actually looks like. And there's four elements uh, that describe what it looks like to trust God here. Uh, first, that we see that trust in God is patient. Our soul waits for the Lord. You only wait for something if you believe it'll actually happen. Uh, so we are we trust is patient. Second, trust is confident. See, God is our help and our shield. Third, trust in God is joyful. Our heart is glad in him. And trust in God is informed. It's based on God's character because it says we trust in his holy name. Now, God's name refers to his revealed character. And when you know what God is like, when you listen to him as he describes in his word what he is like, and we, we know that he is holy, he is just, he is loving, he is kind, he is good, he is sovereign. When we know God's name, his revealed character, then we know, yes, we can trust him. See, patient, confident, joyful, informed. That's what it looks like 
to trust in the Lord. So let's bring this back into our own situation then. Remember all those, you know, those unsettling things I mentioned at the start, like governments uh, changing the laws, uh, hospitals being overrun, uh, nations potentially going to war. Now, I don't know what next year is going to bring. And the last two years have been challenging. I don't know what next year is going to bring or the next decade. I don't know what things, what horrors our children will have to face in their lives. But I do know that God is sovereign and God is loving. And so that means that whatever happens can only happen if God plans it to happen. And if God plans things to happen, then he must always have a good reason for it. Okay, it's the same in your life. If something bad happens to you, or if someone does something bad to you, again, God must have a good and loving reason for allowing that to happen. And it will all make sense when? In eternity. But right now, until then, will you trust him? Will you join in and sing as verse 22 says, Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you.